Well, thank you for your singing, wonderful songs, praises, prayers that we've sung together, and they really connect us to our text this morning. And so let's continue our worship by exploring Psalm 90. And so I invite you to go to Psalm 90 in your copy of God's Word. While you're doing that, let me just note something about the structure of the Psalms in general, kind of at the macro level. I mentioned this back in November. The the Psalms, it's one very large book, but it's also divided into five smaller books. And each of the five books end with a doxology. And perhaps the greatest example of that is Psalm 150, which is just a rousing doxology to our God. But it's also instructive to note that each of the five books begins with some measure of admonition and encouragement to dwell in God's presence, or at the very least, to recognize our need of God's presence. So obviously, book one would begin with Psalm 1, which you would recognize this from Psalm 1, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. Book 2 begins with Psalm 42, which is just this psalm of longing for God in His presence, exemplified by the text, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 73 begins book 3, and it says in part, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Book 4 begins with Psalm 90, the text that we will look at today, beginning with, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then book 5 begins with Psalm 107, which in part says this, will give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And Psalm 107 is very interesting. It repeats this phrase several times, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. I don't think I need to tell you folks, people in all kinds of situations, all walks of life, we are desperate for the presence of God. We need God. And this is what Psalm 90 teaches us. And so the presence of God inevitably leads to the praise of God. God's presence can only really be responded to with doxology. I mean, when you truly comprehend the presence of God, praise comes out. And that's in part what we've done today here together. It's wonderful to gather with the body. And I, let me just pause here. I'm, I'm going off script here for just like two minutes. I, I want to echo what Mitch said about prayer together. So most of you all know that we are new here, all right? So I, I've kind of lost track, but I think we've been here. This Tuesday will be three weeks. It's been kind of a crazy period, you know? So we're new here, and today we had the privilege of praying with, as I understood it, two dear saints of God who've been in this church for a long time, a couple who I believe are down here for about three months, another couple who are visiting here for just a short time, and then us who just moved here. 
I mean, that's a diverse group of people. And folks, I just want to tell you, the, the prayer time that we had together, people we had really never met, was sweet. And the presence of God was there with His gathered people praying. So, I want to encourage you, as Mitch did, to make praying together a priority. It's a wonderful way to practice the presence of God. Psalm 90. Let's, let's read our text this morning. You can follow along as I read. If you are following along in the Pew Bibles, you can find this on page 496. Again, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God give us an understanding of His Word this morning. Just a few months ago, August 7th of 2019, CNN published an article entitled, Billionaire Bunkers, How the 1% Are Preparing for the Apocalypse. It's fascinating to me. The article notes that Bill Gates is rumored to have bunkers on all of his properties. It describes billionaire bunkers from South Dakota to the Czech Republic, which is ironically home to the, quote, biggest billionaire bunker in the world. It took 10 years to build it from 1984 to 1994 as a joint venture between the Soviet Union and, at the time, Czechoslovakia. It's an incredibly luxurious bunker, including vast wine cellars, beautiful pools, and an underground hydroponic gardens. I didn't know what hydroponic meant, by the way, until I read this. It, it means without soil, fake light. Some of these bunkers are set up to accommodate upwards of 5,000 people. 
Some of the builders even described their construction projects as, quote, modern-day Noah's arcs. This is really a thing, folks, believe it or not. And yet, I'm reminded of the Scripture that says this, where can I go from your presence? The day is coming, folks, when billionaire bunkers will not be able to protect human beings. Only refuge in God's presence will protect us. Isn't it interesting to observe our culture's fascination with the apocalypse or science fiction, etc.? I may isolate myself from the vast majority of the audience today, a a, a big faux pas, but I I must confess to you, I am not a big fan of sci-fi. So like my kids want me to go watch Star Wars. I don't think I have ever seen a Star Wars movie. I may be one of the few people in the world. But we are fascinated with sci-fi, with uh, extending life, with other worlds, with the apocalypse, the the never-ending search for immortality, the fountain of youth, the ultimate dwelling place, if you will, the impenetrable refuge, utopia, a better world. And folks, again, we can say this type of refuge is only found in God. And this is what Psalm 90 teaches us. It teaches us that true meaning, true fulfillment in life comes only when we live out each day for the glory of God. Resting in Him, finding our purpose and our protection in Him, treasuring His presence, and indeed living in His presence. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And then this phrase has always struck me. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What does everybody want to know? Where did I come from? And where am I going? You know why we want to know that? Because God put that longing in our heart. And the only way we will ever truly understand that is when we dwell in the presence of God. Three points from this psalm today as we seek to worship our God and treasure His presence. The first point is this. We, we learn a, a lot about God, and the first thing we see is He is the God of chronology, the God of time, if you will. And you see this in verses 1 through 6, and perhaps a couple little words that you can connect to this point. God of chronology, we see His presence and His power. God makes Himself known. Aren't you glad that God stepped into history? And and, and He was before it. He he created all things, and yet he, he, He stepped into it. He has a plan, and He's powerful enough to make that plan happen. And we see this. He's the God of Moses. Very interesting here. Part of the text, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. What do you remember about Moses? When I think of Moses, here's what I think about. He was afraid and hesitant to lead. He told God that his brother Aaron was more qualified to speak. He struck the rock. And he wasn't able to enter the promised land. He spent 40 years in pagan Egypt. He then spent 40 years in the wilderness as basically an unknown shepherd. 
And again, I would pause here to just uh, emphasize the importance of the times in life where God may have you in the wilderness. One-third of Moses' life, truly two-thirds of Moses' life, were spent in the wilderness. Forty of those as an unknown shepherd and forty of those leading God's grumpy people. (laughs) Eighty years in the wilderness. I was struck a while back when I was studying in the book of Galatians, and this is just a side, but again, to emphasize, don't waste your time in the wilderness. In the first chapter of the book of Galatians, Paul talks about going away to Arabia. I think when we think of the apostle Paul, we think about this guy, I mean, and he, he has, I mean, much of our New Testament penned by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when you actually look at Paul's life, everything that we know him for, the scripture, the, the church planting, the mission trips, and all of those things took place in about a, a time space of 20 years at the end of his life. Before that, there was a significant period of time where he went away to Arabia, in the desert, in the wilderness, and God used that time to transform his life. Don't waste your time in the wilderness. God's grace is sweet there. So Moses, 40 years in pagan Egypt, 40 years as an unknown in the wilderness, and then 40 years leading God's people in the wilderness. And he would have never been able to lead God's people the way he did had he not spent those times in the wilderness learning of God's grace in obscurity. God is very gracious to give us these wilderness times in life to remind us that we need his presence and his power. Without the wilderness, folks, we become self-sufficient. The wilderness reminds us that we need God, and we need His presence and His power. Moses is referenced as the man of God in this psalm, and this is very ironic, because in the Old Testament Scriptures, when this title is used, it is literally used of someone who speaks for God. And so here you have Moses, the man who said, Lord, I can't even go in and speak to Pharaoh. I can't talk. Use my brother. And now he is remembered as the man of God, the one who speaks for God. You see what happens when the presence and power of God takes hold of your life? Moses, one of his best lines, I think, was, God, I'm, I'm not a public speaker. And then it's just so ironic to see the life that God gave to him and how he used him in profound ways. It's likely that he writes this psalm at the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as they finally prepare to enter the promised land. There's strong connections between Psalm 90 and Deuteronomy 33 and 34. If you want to take some time to read Deuteronomy 33 and 34 at some point today and see how that connects with Psalm 90, I think it will be a blessing to you. And yet you know that Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land. It seems unfair, doesn't it? I think anybody who has led people before probably thinks this is very unfair. That from our perspective, Moses had that one moment where he struck the rock in anger, and because of that, God said, you're not going to enter the promised land. And yet, I think we see the incredible mercy and grace of God even in this. There's a lot of funerals that I have been to that have been a tremendous blessing to me. 
But as I think of historical funerals, you know what? One that I really would have wanted to see is Moses' funeral. You know who buried him? God. Deuteronomy 34, read that. God buried Moses. What a sweet time that must have been. That Moses truly realized that, you know what, my ultimate dwelling place is not the promised land. My ultimate dwelling place is with God. And I have Him, and He is here essentially conducting my funeral. So let us not feel sorry for Moses. Moses saw God in some incredible ways. We even heard of that last week as Adam spoke from 2 Corinthians talking about the unveiled face hearkening back to Moses in the encounters that he had with God. And so no doubt Moses was a man who truly understood that God was indeed his dwelling place, that God was his refuge. His dwelling place was not Canaan. His dwelling place was God himself. But he's not the only one that can know that joy. God is the God of all who take refuge in him. So yes, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, but then he immediately says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What a heritage for the people who know God. One man has said it this way, we are travelers and God is our home. I love that picture. We're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens. This is how the New Testament describes us here on earth. This earth is not my home. I'm just a passing through, the old chorus said. Perhaps some of you want to start clapping as I say that, right? And singing it. Our destination is the place where God is. Uh, Psalm 23, we all could quote it, no doubt. And yet it ends with that incredible promise and Uh, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is indeed the God of all who take refuge in Him. And I must pause here now and say, if, if so far everything I have said today sounds foreign and perhaps even weird to you, I want to hold out the truth of the gospel to you. That, that you can take refuge in God. That that there is indeed a God, and He is in charge, and He is sovereign. We're going to learn about that in just a moment. But He's also merciful, and He is gracious. And if you are here today, and you are not a believer in this God, first and foremost, I am thrilled that you're here, and I know that all of us are. Second, I want you to know that I don't think it's an accident that you're here. It's It's an evidence of God's grace. And third, the gospel is simply this, that we are sinners, we are broken, we need God. And He is there because of His grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the simplest prayers in all of the Scripture is prayed by the publican in the New Testament Scriptures, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's truly the gospel. I need mercy, I'm a sinner, and God is a Savior. And so if you're here today and you haven't taken refuge in Christ, I urge you to do so. Talk to us after. We would love to tell you more about this. Who is this God? I was humbled this week in my study. I could show you my Bible right here. And I have this interesting note written at the top of Psalm 90 that I had to scribble out. It says this, book 4 
of the Psalms. Yahweh exclusively used. And the very, well, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord is Adonai. (laughs) And so I had to scribble out. Yahweh is not exclusively used in book four. In fact, in this psalm, we see three names of God. And this tells us who is God. And and that word Lord, it's capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. This is Adonai. He is the master. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. You, You see this later at the end Uh, Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God, Adonai, Adonai Elohim. He's master, he's Lord, he's sovereign. It's just the way it is, folks. This is who God is. We also see uh, the the name Elohim translated as God. The end of verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This emphasizes he is creator, he's judge, he's strength, he's power. We see that again in that last verse. And then we do see the name Yahweh in verse 13. Return, O Lord, in all caps. This is the one who is and always has been and always will be. He's transcendent and yet he's imminent. He's God with us. This is who God is. He sounds pretty powerful. Incredible. Majestic, glorious. And he sounds that way because he is that way. He, he rules over all. And our, our duty is to pursue his presence and to bow before him. When you see worship, in, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, but even in the New Testament, when it's translated, it's a word that literally means to bow. And oftentimes you see that, that it's not just bowing, it's like falling on your face before God. It, it's as if the, the, the picture is that human beings are to get as low as they can because God is so great. It's not a groveling, it's a, it's a worship, an exalting of who God is, and this is who He is. This is the God that you can take refuge in. And this psalm then begins to talk about what God does. Not only who He is, but what He does, His activity. And you see, He protects us in verse 1. Lord, You have been our dwelling place. And this is a dwelling place that is kind of used as a refuge, a haven. He protects. He creates. And, and He doesn't just create. He creates out of nothing. Modern science has made great strides. But I still want to see somebody who you put into a, a, a room that is just like concrete all around and tell them create something out of nothing. You can't do it. This is what separates God from us. This is infinity and finiteness. He's God. He, he creates. And He created you and He created me. And that means there's purpose for your life. There's purpose for every day. And you connect to that purpose when you treasure the presence of God. He sustains. It says there, from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 1, in all generations. Hebrews 1 talks about how God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, sustains all things by the word of His power. 
we joke about this, right? As parents, we tell our children, don't do that. And immediately they do it, right? We're really powerful. No, God speaks things into existence. It's unfathomable. It's, it's incomprehensible. This is who He is. And then He sustains His creation. Many of you know these statistics of, of how, you know, if the earth were just a little bit further from the sun, uh, we would freeze. And if we were close, because God sustains all things in all generations from everlasting to everlasting. That makes my head hurt because I'm finite and God is infinite. And so when I don't fully understand Him, I worship Him. Because then I know He's not a God that I've made with my own hands. He is the God who made me. He rules or He, he reigns. He, he, he's the sovereign. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return Old children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and the evening it fades and withers. You know what, folks? We may not like how, many, uh, how God does things, but guess what? It's His universe. It's His world. He rules. He reigns. He is Adonai. He's Master, Lord, Sovereign. He, he created it. And so it is indeed His universe. It, it, he, he is sovereign in His power. And this power includes love and mercy and justice and wrath and life and death and resurrection and time and infinity and everything in between. And He rules over all of that and He does it perfectly. And He is holy and He is just. And the reason I say all of that is because verse 3 does indeed say, you return man to dust and say, return all children of man. And this harkens back to Genesis that we come from dust and to dust we will return. Death. Who likes to talk about it? It's not fair. Sickness and evil and murder and all of these things, it's not fair if God were really in charge. If he were powerful enough, he'd stop that. Or maybe he's not powerful enough. And folks, I'm here to tell you, he rules. It's his universe. And he's good. And, and without death, we wouldn't understand resurrection. And without love or without wrath, we wouldn't understand God's love. And so again, we pause and we worship the one who created all things. Because He rules. He is powerful enough to say, return to dust. It, it, the, the word literally means powder. He's powerful enough to create out of that dust. He's powerful enough to say, you know what? You are my child and because of that you will live with me forever in glory. This is the God we serve. Holding out constantly the hope of eternal salvation. And so all of these things that we may bristle against, death and sickness and famine, are all in the end 
evidences of His grace that point us to Him. I mean, indeed, folks, when, when you think of, of the worst evils in the world, the only way you can even classify it as evil is if there is a corresponding good. And that's God. Constantly pursuing us. Constantly showing His mercy and His grace. He's holy and He's just. We need to remember that these people were wandering in the wilderness for a reason, right? God must punish sin. He's the Creator. We are the creature. It's very interesting in verse 3 when you, you see the re- you return man to dust and say return all children of man. It could almost be translated there, return all children of Adam. It, it, it's the, that's the, actually the Hebrew word there. At the end of verse 3, Adam. And, and so it's been pointed out that two different words are used for man in this verse. One emphasizing our frailty and the second emphasizing our origin which is not glamorous, right? Dust. Again, reminding us, we need God, and yet He's there. I'm reminded of the old hymn, Oh, Worship the King. Many of you probably have heard that. There's a stanza in that song that comes from this verse 3. Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail, In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. This is the God who rules. And so worship the King. It's His universe. We get to live in it, but we must abide by His rules. Part of which includes... We don't live forever on this earth. And so in verses 5 and 6, he talks about this. There's kind of like a, uh, from the greater to the lesser here, talking about the brevity of life. Uh, He talks about a thousand years as a day. Then it goes to a watch in the night, which is a three to four hour period of time. Then a flood, a dream, a blade of grass that quickly fades. Life is short, folks. I think the greatest lesson in this psalm is that we need to maximize every day for the glory of God. It's His universe. He's the giver and taker of life. Be encouraged, though, folks. Because because it is His universe, God is not surprised by anything. He's in total control of time and space. He is indeed present, and He is indeed powerful, and He is faithful. He keeps His promises. And so not only is He the God of chronology or time, He is also the God of covenant. Point number two, the God of covenant or truth. And we see this in verses 7 through 11. Immediately we are confronted in verse 7 with the anger or wrath of God. And again, this may be hard for some people, but God is a God of covenant. And and part of that is His precepts and His perfection and His purity. And so we could look at it this way. Man provides the secret sins and iniquities, 
And God provides the forgiveness and healing. And so somewhere in there, it makes sense that there would be wrath and anger. As I mentioned earlier, they've been wandering in the wilderness because of their willful disobedience. God is holy and He's just. He must punish sin. Our hearts cry out for that, by the way, except for when we're the one being punished, right? I mean, I'm not confessing anything. I haven't been pulled over down here yet. But, you know, there's people flying down to Mockley. Why did you pull me over, Mr. Policeman? Well, because you broke the law. God is in charge. He is a God of perfection and purity and holiness and a God of covenant. And those matter. And we as human beings violate God's covenant on a regular basis, unfortunately. God never does. He is faithful to His covenant word. And part of that faithfulness is indeed punishing sin. And yet we have a God who is gracious and merciful even in the display of His wrath. I've said this before, and I don't mean any offense, but I am, I, I, and I'm really just getting to know most of you, but I'm really glad none of you are God, and you should be glad that I am not God, because we would not be nearly as merciful and gracious as God is. Now, I'm joking there uh, partly, but that's a true statement, folks. Uh, we, 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 we dare not doubt God. If any of us were God, we would uh, at times do away with our worst enemies in the most unkind and ungracious of ways. God is not like that. He's just. He is bound by His covenant word, which demands that He deal with sin. Not only the iniquities that are public and known to everybody, but also, the second half of verse 8, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The light of God's presence is piercing, it's radiant, it can be blinding, and it is illuminating. And so we need to remember this, folks, that God is holy, and He knows. He knows the secret sins of our heart, and and, and we don't say that to scare us all or discourage us all, we say that Because not only is that true, but it's also true that He has made a remedy for that. That that we can be forgiven. That we can know the joy of forgiveness. I, I would ask you this question as we contemplate this. The wrath of God, the anger of God, God punishing sin. Why would God discipline or show wrath if He didn't care? I, I think it shows His incredible love for His people. I mean, as, as a parent, if I see my child doing things that I know they're not supposed to do, sometimes the easy way out is to ignore it, right? The, the difficult thing is to actually discipline and work through that difficulty and confront and work through all of those things. And this is what God does with us. He is not content. He does not leave us as covenant breakers. He heals that. And He's forgiving This is implicit in this section. Verse 9, Moses is talking about all our days. And and by the way, note all of the references to time in this psalm. Years and yesterday and days. 
Moses has been is talking about all the, the 40 years, all our days pass away under your wrath. Every day they are reminded they are under the judgment of God, the just wrath of God for their willful disobedience. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We might get 70 years or 80 years, yet their span, that's an interesting word. It's a word that, you know, it, it can almost be translated as pride. Like, you know, the, the, the best thing about them is toil and trouble. That's a pretty dour existence, right? But this gets better, folks. The end of this psalm resolves all of this. These days are soon gone. But he asks this penetrating question. Because God must keep His covenant, because God is holy, because He is righteous, because He is gracious and merciful and full of compassion... And because that's the only way we can be forgiven and made right with Him, we must ask the question in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We need to consider that. We need to understand that this is serious business. This is eternal business. That God is a God of covenant and truth. But we don't end there. The third point and final point today is this, that Yes, God is the God of chronology, He's the God of compassion, but He's uh, the God of covenant, but He's thirdly the God of compassion. And we see this at the end of this psalm. He's patient with us, He has a purpose for us. And Moses says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we may understand, gain this wisdom of who God is. What it is to have the presence of God abounding in my life. We need to be taught this because God is not a God of randomness. He has a purpose for every day, every moment of our lives. We must be learners, and life is our school, and God is our teacher. Numbering our days, you know, it's interesting as we contemplate this psalm. As I've studied it before in years past, I kind of honed in on, you know, the fact that the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80 As I was studying in recent days, I really honed in more on this, to number our days. And it sounds strange, doesn't it, to hear someone say from a pulpit, live for today, right? That that sounds counterintuitive to everything the Bible says. But here's how I would say it. I think what Psalm 90 is saying to us is live for today in light of eternity. Folks, you may not get tomorrow. I don't. I do care, but I understand what I'm saying. I don't care whether you're 90 or 9, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so I believe what Moses is trying to say here is this. Teach us to number our days. In other words, help me to value today in light of eternity. It, it doesn't matter how long I live as long as I live today for the glory of God. And that should encourage all of us because I assume that every one of us in here have done things in our past that we regret. Maybe you had a bad day. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe you had a bad year. Maybe you even had a bad decade. Yankees fans did. We didn't make it to the World Series. 
Whatever your past is, folks, there is a sense in which this psalm, it's saying, look, when we ask God to teach us to number our days, you, you have a fresh start every morning. Lamentation says it this way, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God keeps His covenant. And that means when you treasure the presence of God and you understand who He, he is and make every day count for the glory of God. You are gaining a heart of wisdom. So live for today in light of eternity. I was thinking about this in several respects. Number one, a friend of mine posted a video this week, this past week, of a a 98-year-old missionary. I wish I could remember his name. If any of you are interested in watching, it's really just like so encouraging. 98-year-old missionary singing a song with just great, Gusto. I mean, singing at you know from his heart, and and I, I was just so blessed by it that I wanted to show my kids. And I was, I was showing my kids. I was showing uh, Jared and Jane. And for those of you that don't know, Jane is our four-year-old. And upon watching that video of this ninety-eight-year-old man singing this song, the first words out of Jane's mouth were, "Is that you, Daddy?" And I thought, again, Jane is really trying to get on my good side. I mean, I'm 49. This guy is twice my age. Now, nothing against him, right? I hope, number one, I I get to 98. And I hope if I do, I can sing like him and have control of my, you know, faculties like he does. But I was like, Jane, uh, Jane, let's talk about Psalm 90 here. Let's talk about numbering our days. I am not 98. The, the second thing is, you know, we, we have an interesting, uh, in our church, this Wednesday, Lord willing, with, with Bill White, I'm going to uh, go meet George Mayhew, who is 91. And also, I believe we have, uh, I, I guess it wouldn't be technically a member, but a new baby, Reed Lorraine, that is, I think, officially a day and a half old. Isn't it striking to think of that? A a little baby girl that is just over one day old. And then our oldest member to my knowledge, George, who is 91. What a perspective on life. I don't think we understand the value of of a day. I I know I don't. And and again, think of it this way, okay? I'm going to use my daughter Jane again as an example. She's four. One year to Jane... That, that's like one quarter of her life. That's 25% of her life. So, so that, you know, kids traveling and stuff, when are we, we going to get there? Time to them is, is kind of all out of whack from an adult perspective. But one year to Jane is 25% of her life. You know what one year of my life is? It's 2%. It's, it's 1 49th. And so our perspective changes over time. And I think what God is calling us to do here in this passage is to, again, value today, folks. This day for the glory of God. He goes on. He says, all of these requests, and by the way, this is a great way to pattern your prayer life, verses 12 through 17. Teach us, have pity on us, satisfy us, make us glad. Let your work be shown, your glorious power be shown. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us, establish the work of our hands. Great 
way to fashion your prayers. And so he does. He indeed says, have compassion on us. Have pity on your servants. Now, why would he ask that? And I believe the answer is this, because he knows God will answer it. Moses knows this. And so again, we, we, we encounter wrath and love. Wrath and compassion. All in the same small portion of Scripture. But we know that God is full of compassion and mercy. Have pity on us, Lord. Have compassion on us. And we can pray that with full confidence that God hears and answers that prayer. Then he says to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Again, this this harkens back to the fact that God keeps His Word. Covenant love, mercy is how that can also be translated. In the morning with your steadfast love. In other words, each day that God gives me, I want to be reminded that God is a God who keeps His Word. He is faithful. He is compassionate. He will teach me. Why? That I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Now, there's another reference to time. So, I want to be satisfied in the morning with the steadfast love of God so that every day He gives me, I can rejoice and be glad because of who He is. He continues with that thought, verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. And I would submit to you that, again, hearkening back to Psalm 23 and many other passages in Scripture, that God does this and then some. That however you view your life, whether perhaps even as the children of Israel, maybe you feel like there is a, this vast span in your life where you have been wandering in the wilderness. And yet, folks, I can confidently say to you, because of the work of Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ and rightly related to God, you will dwell with your God forever. And so, when we ask God to make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, as many, days, uh, as many years as we have seen evil, He will do that because of Jesus Christ. Because you will indeed dwell with Him forever in glory. And in verse 16, He says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Folks, again, Teach us to number our days. I want to live in such a way today that not only me and my wife, but my kids, those who follow me, will see the glory and grandeur of God, to value the presence and power of God. And then he gets to verse 17. Let the favor or the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. God of chronology, God of covenant, God of compassion. How do we respond? I would describe this as the posture of God's people. 
to, to such a God. Here's, here's what, we, what we do. Here's how we respond. Let me just give you some, some various applications based upon what we have learned of God in this passage. Number one, in the midst of a changing world, it, it is changing, is it not? Even in the past week, in the midst of this changing, sometimes crazy world, living as we do in what Paul refers to as a frail tent, we need to remember what Moses says in Deuteronomy 33 and 34, this, the eternal God is your refuge and dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So first and foremost, remember that. It's true. It's fact. The eternal God is your refuge and your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I've been moving a lot of furniture these days. I realize I do not have everlasting arms. God does. God does. It's interesting to me that Psalm 91 begins with this verse, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, we don't know who wrote Psalm 91, but we do know that the Psalms were put together, this this book, by editors, and I don't think it's an accident that this follows Psalm 90. If you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, let me just, again, but for, for application's sake, if, if you're looking at Psalm 91 and verse 1, the, the word dwell and the word abide are interesting words. He who dwells, this is the idea of permanence. In other words, you know, like, like I have a house. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide. That's kind of more like the idea of a tent, a, a more temporary dwelling a day-by-day type thing in, in the shadow of the Almighty. Folks, if, if, if God, if you realize that your ultimate destination is heaven, that's going to help you in the day-by-day. That's the point here. He who dwells, it's as if, you know, Colossians says, seek those things which are above. If, if I realize I am not a, a citizen, I'm a pilgrim, I'm an alien here, I'm a citizen of heaven, that is my dwelling place, that's my home, that will affect my day-to-day, that will help me number today for the glory of God. So dwell in the shelter of the Most High, and that will help you live day-by-day. Day. Maybe you haven't built a billionaire bunker but perhaps you are isolating yourself from reality in other ways. In other words, you are finding your refuge or you are dwelling in places other than God Himself. And today, you need to walk away from this passage and say, God, teach me to number my days in light of Your presence and power. We need to ask God that the last phrase of Psalm 90 that is repeated for emphasis, establish the work of our hands upon us. This is essentially saying, folks, God makes what we do worthwhile. Whatever your vocation, whatever your career, if you are numbering your days in light of the presence and power of God, He is establishing the work of your hands and it is meaningful. It is worth it. Life is brief. And so we should pray with Moses, teach us 
Life is hard at times. And so we pray with Moses, satisfy us, verse 14. And yes, indeed, our work or lives can seem futile and frustrating at times. And so we pray with Moses, God, establish the work of my hands. Help whatever I am doing to count for eternity. And ultimately, folks, we need to walk away from this, not looking to Moses or not looking to any other human being, but looking to Jesus. The Old Testament is the story of human frailty and failure. And yet there are always these rays of hope. Not the least of which is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, which talks about... uh, The wonder of a counselor, four things, the wonder of a counselor, the God of might, the Father of eternity, and the Prince of Peace. And so, you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so, I want to encourage you today from Psalm 90 to walk away from here today, not looking to Moses, but you can be encouraged by Moses, not looking to other people, though you can be encouraged by them and your walk with them, as I already have been by you today, but looking to Jesus. He is indeed the wonder of a counselor, and so we say to Him, teach me, counsel me. He is indeed the God of might. He he formed the earth and the world. He can handle whatever is going on in your life. He is indeed the the Prince of Peace. And so we pray, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. In other words, I want things to be as they were supposed to be, as they were meant to be. Shalom, peace. That only comes when we're rightly related to the Prince of Peace. And He is indeed the Father of eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Look to Jesus He was the one who was crushed, so we don't have to be eternally crushed. We've seen God in this passage today, and I trust that you will walk away from here saying, I want to dwell in the presence of God. I want to be taught by God, and I want to number my days in light of eternity. And may God help us to do that. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for examples in the Word, people like Moses who are frail just like us, and we can see how You transform them. But Lord, I pray that as we walk away from here today, and even now as we prepare to partake of communion, that that we would think upon Christ, that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus, rejoicing that we know the joy of the presence and power of God because of the work of Christ. And so, Lord, would you continue to teach us from your word, for your glory, and for our good, and for the salvation of the lost, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.